Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, February 13th, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. I hope you remember tomorrow's Valentine's Day, so I hope you've got those gifts ready for your significant other. We want to welcome, welcome you to tonight's program. Uh, this is show number 265, and we have on with us Mr. Ed Minnesuri uh, from Weatherstem. He is the founder and CEO of Weatherstem, and uh, you've probably noticed over the past couple of months, we've been able to uh, live stream some of their cameras and some of the data uh, that the uh, weather stations collect. And so Ed has been uh, nice enough to join us tonight. He's actually in the uh, Panhandle of Florida, so uh, we've, we've caught him away from home. But uh, he has uh, he's here tonight, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about what Weatherstem does and how uh, we all can follow the information that uh, that they uh that they bring out to uh, to all the weather folks. So uh, if you are watching tonight, we have many ways you can do that. We are live streaming right now on Facebook Live, Periscope, and on our YouTube page. So we'd love for you to interact with us. You can send us some questions or comments, and we'll be uh, scrolling through those feeds throughout the show and make sure if you have any questions, we will submit them to Ed. And if you are listening on the podcast version, Towards the end of the show, we'll let Ed send out uh, some information, how you can follow Weather Stim and get information. And uh, that way, if you're listening, you can follow along as well and maybe submit any questions you have. So uh, it has been a busy weather day, uh, weather news day per se. And with the latest information, I'm going to turn it over to our executive producer, James Barton. James? Scotty, thanks so much. That's right. I think we rewrote this segment about three times so as we want to give you the top three weather headlines, and they kept changing throughout the day. And we start with this news that came out of FEMA today that their director and their administrator, Brock Long, has resigned after about two years on the job. Still a lot of details uh, not coming out just yet, but you'll recall that uh, FEMA was an agency that was meeting just last week with the National Hurricane Center as they were preparing for the upcoming tropical season. Uh, now, it's not immediately known why he resigned other than and uh, waiting for more information to come on out officially. We will note that there have been some stories recently about an investigation into him using a government vehicle to drive between his home here in North Carolina and Washington, D.C., but that's not to say that that was the reason that he resigned, other than the government agency announcing that he is uh, no longer their director as of today. The other big piece of government news that we're watching as it affects services like FEMA and the National Weather Service is that we are just now two days away from the next potential partial government shutdown. And the reason that's of interest to us here in the weather community is because if we were to enter into another partial government shutdown, workers, including those at the National Weather Service offices here in the Carolinas, would potentially go unpaid once again. So while lawmakers have reportedly come to a deal that will avoid that, nothing has been officially signed yet. So we're some two days, three hours, 40 minutes, and 18 seconds away until we get that signed on the dotted line. Some good weather news, especially if you're a technology fan, is that we now have Goes West up online, which uh, is going to provide some beautiful imagery, especially over the western half of the United States. You'll recall that Goes East, the new satellite, went into uh, service. So what was it, guys, a year or two ago? So now we have these beautiful uh Rapid refresh, high-resolution images all across the United States. And the best way I can describe this, if this is not your area of expertise, is it is like the equivalent of going from a standard-definition television to a high-definition television. And we're very excited now to have that straight across the board with one bird watching the East Coast and one bird watching the West Coast. Scotty, back to you. Thanks, James. Yes, some exciting news, Jared. I'll bring you in for just a second because I know you love this stuff. Um, you know, we used to have that excuse. Well, we really don't know what storms are doing out over the Pacific Ocean. We don't have a lot of data to be able to, you know, kind of uh, dissect the storm. Well, now we've got some of that data. So hopefully the the, the looks of it could help uh, better forecast maybe events that hit the West Coast to move east. Yeah, and it's pretty remarkable. You know, the launch of Go 17 is great because we now have two satellites that we control. Uh, in the GOES-R series, you know, GOES-16, GOES-East uh, launched, uh, it became operational about a year ago, uh, not, too, not too long ago, about a year and a month ago. And um, we get 15-minute full disks as opposed to full disks every three hours, which we used to do with the old uh, GOES series. Um, so GOES-15 is still up there. They're going to compare it with GOES-17. GOES-17 just has, has a couple hiccups with its water vapor channels, um, issues with the advanced baseline imager. 
on that satellite or is going to corrupt some of the uh, is going to corrupt some of the imagery at times just to having some cooling problems and then the infrared feeds back on itself it's a really nerdy explanation but we have we have the two advanced baseline imagers and Himawari 8 on the other side of the world that that basically the the, the advanced Himawari imager is basically the same hardware that we have in the ghost satellites so that is really cool. We now have 10 minute, 10 to 15 minute rapid refresh of three views of the Earth at a full disk, which is awesome. There's testing underway now to increase the rate, the refresh rate to 10 minutes for the full disk. Um, so that that looks to be uh, coming into operation pretty soon, which is very exciting. Um, and the other part about Goes West that's really exciting, the new Goes West, is that we now have lightning data from the geostationary lightning mapper. Uh, not just for Atlantic storms, but now for Pacific storms. So we're going to learn a lot. We're going to get a lot of really good data, and uh, excited to see how um, excited to see how things improve. This is always really interesting. Satellite data is a big part of what goes into the models. So uh, more high resolution, more frequent data, I think, is going to be a big win for all of us. Yeah, looking forward to it. Can't wait for us, I guess, to get our first big storm and kind of sample and see how it how it works out. Kathy uh, Kleinman watching tonight. She's wanting to know about. Uh, some of the uh, high winds that we saw in the North Carolina mountains. So for you folks who are watching tonight from the high country, uh, about nine o'clock, a little bit after nine o'clock, uh, Evan Fisher going to go in detail about the, uh, the high winds that the North Carolina mountains uh, experienced last night. So stick around for that. But before we get to uh, the high wind talk, I want to bring in our guest tonight. This is uh, Mr. Ed Menasuri. Uh Ed is the CEO and founder of Weatherstim. And Ed, uh, you know, we were able to link up with you through uh, our panelist who is not on tonight, Miss Melissa Griffin. She is uh, on assignment with uh, the climate office there in South Carolina. But uh, Melissa was uh, able to establish a, a, a hello to you from us. And uh, we were able to uh, chat and uh, we uh, loved the product and we we're able to uh, use some of your data on us. And uh, in return, we're wanting to learn more about you and your company. So welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. You're welcome, Ed. And uh, for those who uh, may not know you, or it's a question that we normally ask our first-time guest, um, how did you get into this weather, the weather world? We always ask our guests, uh, you know, all of us have a story of how we got interested in weather or we got into this profession. So uh, basically, what is your story? What's your weather journey so far? Oh, yeah. I've, I've been hardcore into weather since I was about six years old. I grew up in the snow New York. And my first memory is um, I went to bed as about a six-year-old child, and there was no snow on the ground. And I woke up, and there was about two feet of snow on the ground. And that was just such a, a, a rush. Um, it was just, you know, winter activity, sledding, making snowmen, just, just for it to go from green grass when I went to sleep, and there's two feet of snow. I just, from that point forward, I was hooked. And my career ambition was to be a weatherman and a meteorologist. And uh, I have um, been a hardcore weather enthusiast ever since. Hey, Ed. So going into the weather stem and what we got, um, your company, what exactly is weather stem? And what do you all do? Uh, what are kind of the different aspects of the business? Sure. So the program started very much focused on education. Uh, and of course, STEM is an acronymic reference to science, technology, engineering, and math. And even though I just got done saying how I've had a lifelong passion with weather, uh, from about 1999 until 2015, my day job was I, I was running an educational software company. So I was not really working in weather. And one of my projects, uh, I wrote the software and designed the hardware for a program in Florida known as the Florida Virtual School, which is a statewide online high school that's offered to kids all across the state of Florida. And um, I, I got very interested in um, education when I learned that the state of Florida did not offer a high school level meteorology course, which I thought was very strange. You know, I, I, you know, there's all these wonderful science electives you could take, like astronomy and marine biology, but in a state such as Florida, where we get hit by hurricanes six, seven months of the year, our two biggest industries are agriculture and tourism. Uh, you know, we have forest fires, you name it. Uh, other than blizzards, we have it in Florida. So originally, our, our intention was to just set out building weather. And if you go to any of our weather STEM websites, you'll easily find these. So at first, the program was just about trying to help through philanthropy 
to help kids in Florida learn more about weather. Um, and then, then it was um, from that point, we got the idea. We said, well, what if we could go to a school? What if we could set up a weather station and then take the data that these weather stations are collecting and use them to make that content, that educational material, even better? Um, and from that, Weather STEM was born. So again, originally the focus was as you know, strictly education. Um, and so that, that's sort of how the program got started. And, and then we've since had opportunities to branch into you know, emergency management and health and safety and athletics. So uh, it, it's pretty exciting, but still education is still our, our very main core. And, and, and you know, our, our mutual colleague, Melissa, I'll, I'll throw big props out to her because um, she still continues as our, you know, one of our core subject matter experts. And she has designed and written a lot of the great educational content that you'll find in WeatherStem. Interesting. I really wish that I had a meteorology class to take in high school. It would have been a lot of fun. Same so here. over the years, um, over the years, y'all have created a bunch of new weather stations. You said it started in the schools and over time it's just kind of grown. How many different stations do y'all have uh, and in what states? Is it all across yeah. the U.S.? Or uh, well, it's concentrated in Florida. Uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, all of our sites are free to the public. Uh, you know, we have a mobile app that lists all of our sites. Uh, you know, it, it's pretty easy to see our full list of where our network is. Uh, we have about, um, I'm, I'm going to just say around 350 sites right now. Um, most of them are concentrated in Florida. You know, we're based, I live in Tallahassee. That's where this program got started. And uh, in 2015, when we got the project off the ground, we actually donated one of these weather stem systems to a public school in all of Florida's 67 counties. Um, and then it sort of has continued to grow from there. And then we, we actually, um, our introduction into the Carolinas actually was born via our partnership with Florida State University. Um, they're a member of the Atlantic Coast Conference, and we had the opportunity to introduce Weather STEM at the Atlantis Coast Conference Security Conference a few years ago at University of Miami, and there were some representatives from NC State and UNC and Clemson and Wake Forest, and that was actually what led to the um, opportunity for us to introduce Weather STEM to your great states. Awesome, thank you. I, I was just looking at that map that James had scrolling past and noticing that there was there's no station in Asheville. That's where I call home. So maybe we can talk about that one day. Yeah, we, we definitely we we're we're on a mission to introduce the program to as many places as we can. Uh, and uh, you know, we definitely we should talk for sure. We'd love to have one in Asheville. That's great. Thank you. Some of the other footage that I was rolling, Ed, was actually from a recent install you did in the Carolinas. I met up with your crew in, in Rock Hill. Uh, how many units do you have roughly in the Carolinas now? And, and I think you recently signed on some new partners and some brand new stations here in the Carolinas, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I'm sorry I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, but I'm going to say we have about a dozen systems in South Carolina and probably about maybe 15 in North Carolina. Um, and, and we're certainly looking to expand that footprint. Um, and we would welcome any opportunity uh, to do so. The, the project that we recently embarked on with eight new systems in South Carolina was actually in partnership with SCETV, which is South Carolina's public educational television, uh, which was sort of catalyzed by the, a relationship they have with the University of Florida's College of Journalism, which is one of our partners down here in Florida. Hey, I got a quick question for you. Um, we're hitting a lot on education. I'm just kind of curious, is there any industries uh, outside of, you know, the education realm that have found value in, in you know, the weather stem uh, products and, and what you guys offer? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll be very candid. Um, you know, I, I've been in the education industry for many years and it's a tough business. It's a tough industry to make a living. Um, and that's just the bottom line. So, you know, by having the opportunity to get introduced into emergency management, we found a whole other market sector to, to cater to. And one of the things that's been really exciting that's been happening is we've sort of created this intersection between education and emergency management. You know, you have a lot of programs out there that will educate. You have a lot of programs out there that will inform and alert and update. We want WeatherStem to do both. We want to not only tell you about a particularly hazardous or threatening weather situation, we also want to teach you about it. We want to help you better understand it, uh, you know, from a scientific aspect and from a community aspect. So uh, down here in Florida and, and also spreading north into, you know, even up into the Carolinas, we're starting to work with more municipalities. For instance, um, you know, we have a partnership with um, Currituck County 
uh, right on the Outer Banks. Uh, we have a partnership with uh, Guilford County and a few other counties there in the Carolinas. Um, so a lot of the introductions of WeatherStem to some of the locations in your states have been via offices of emergency management at the city, county, or university level. That's awesome. And I'm sure at the end of the show, uh, Scotty, will give you a chance to kind of let you know if, if, if anyone's interested in maybe partnering with you to give you a call, how to contact you. That'd be great. Yeah, we'd, we'd love that. So, Ed, I was, you know, I was looking at you guys as social media, and I think it's really cool how you were able to pick out, like, uh, random random sunsets, random sunrises, yeah. and, and, and post those. How do you all do that? Do, is that some sort of bot, or is uh, it well, just a uh, you know, my, curator? Interestingly, um, you know, my, I'm a meteorologist. Um, you know, I got my undergraduate master's degree in meteorology, and I'm, I'm running this weather technology company. But I would say probably 80, 75 to 80% of my job with WeatherStem is just as a hardcore programmer, um, you know, as a, as a developer. So, you know, it, it took a lot of time and research to figure out how to create automated, you know, weather technology that will update Twitter and Facebook and YouTube with videos and images. So it's, it's really fun. But yeah, every time we set up one of these systems, it automatically gets its own Facebook page and its own Twitter page that the WeatherStem system updates automatically with weather alerts and bulletins. So like every night at sunset, it posts, what does the sky look like? Every morning at sunrise, what does the sky look like? Um, and then on the main WeatherStem social media site, we extract at random, as you pointed out, you know, we'll take, um, of all of our WeatherStem systems, we pull a sunrise at random, and that's the random sunrise of the day and random sunset of the day. So it, it's fun. It's, um, and that was one of our goals from the beginning. We wanted to make this program um, fun. We wanted to you know, have something that would not only benefit a particular school that we were going to bring the program to or like some sort of a entity. We also wanted to have something that would engage the community around that organization. And social media is a great platform with which to do so. Oh, that's fantastic. I I I really uh, I really like a good automation system. I too am a programmer, so that that oh, is excellent. that is that is my day to day. So I'm sure we can have, I'm sure we could have a lot to talk about. No question. Thank Absolutely. you, Ed. <laughs> All right. Well, I thought uh, James was next on the question list, but I'll ask the question. I'm sure James is busy. Uh, with stuff. Uh, uh, Ed, we were talking about the time lapse and stuff. So talk to us about uh, the sky cameras and the images and how you guys get the data and archive it uh, for sure. folks to see. So, uh, you know, WeatherStem, uh, th there's two realms to it. There's a hardware realm and there's a software realm. So when we go to a WeatherStem site, like for instance, some of the ones we set up there in the Carolinas recently, um, you know, we install a weather station. We install at least one what we call cloud camera. In some cases, we also install hydrological probes that make measurements such as soil moisture, soil temperature, that sort of thing. But for me, the really exciting thing is what do we do with the data and the information those systems collect? Well, we use it to drive a web, a mobile, and a social media platform. So we have actually created, uh, again, you know, with my background as a web developer, we have created a very extensive cloud-based architecture to manage copious amounts of weather and environmental data and images that we can deploy on the web, on a mobile app, and via social media. So it's just um, you know, a very large set of storage capacity that we have in our cloud, and uh, we do all sorts of neat programmatic things to create things like time-lapse videos and, and others for the cool things that we're able to uh, push out to our public. So you're talking about cool things, and I'm not necessarily saying what I'm about to ask is a cool thing, but it's something that you guys were able to document. Um, over the past couple of years, we've had a lot of hurricanes affect the area, uh, but where your weather stations, where the weather, some weather stations were uh, located, you were able to capture some of uh, the events from Hurricane Irma and Matthew and Florence and even Hurricane Michael uh, this year or this past year. Um, Anything that sticks out from from what you oh, were yeah. able to get, uh, maybe we could talk about for the next few minutes. Uh, sure. These storms that that kind of stick out to you. Well, one of my uh, um, stories that I'll share about Hurricane Michael. So, first of all, most of the systems that we install, we connect to the local sites, electricity, and ground-based internet. And there's sort of a challenge there because a lot of times you're most interested in monitoring the weather live when the weather is severe. 
well, what's one of the first things that's going to buckle when you have severe weather? The power and the internet. Uh, so, you know, more and more, we're trying to set up more solar powered cellular systems that are completely independent of any ground based power or um, internet. Um, down here in Florida, there is a, there's a, um, a place called St. George Islands, which is in Franklin County, a beautiful barrier islands with a, a lot of nice beaches. And there's a four mile bridge um, to that island. And we have a solar powered cellular weather stem system on that bridge. And actually during the coverage of Hurricane Michael, the Weather Channel was referring to the data and images from that weather stem system quite a lot. And um, it actually dropped off offline. And I was heartbroken because we went through all this uh, effort to make sure that it was going to be reliable, that it had a cellular or solar power um, implementation. Um, and it turns out after the storm, when we went to investigate it, um, the, the unit was about 20 feet off the water. The entire unit had become submerged. Okay, so the entire unit went underwater in the high surge of Hurricane Michael. And I had remembered thinking when we installed it, you know, yeah, there's no way this will, this, this is plenty high off the water. There's no way there will ever be a storm that has surged this high. And sure enough, uh, Michael proved us wrong. So that, that was, um, you know, quite, a, quite an interesting experience going and looking at some of the weather stem systems that were right in the bullseye of Hurricane Michael. Um, I'm actually, as I'm talking to you, I'm on my way back to Tallahassee. I'm in Jackson County, Florida, which is just north of Panama City. And the eye came right across this county, and, and, and there's still a, a tremendous amount of devastation here. Wow, that's incredible. And, uh, you know, just kind of going forward with that, you know, looking into the future of WeatherStem, you know, what kind of innovations do you guys see well, on the horizon? Well, one of the things I'm, I'm really excited about is um, there, there is a technology. I'm sure a lot of your viewers and listeners, uh, you know, that are computer savvy have maybe some experience with it. There's a whole industry referred to as the IoT, the Internet of Things. Okay, and uh, within the Internet of Things, there's this um, computer component called a Raspberry Pi, which is basically a credit card size Linux computer. You can buy them at Target for about $35, and they're very extensible, and you can attach cameras to them. And uh, we're partnered with some really innovative people that are actually building sensors and probes and cameras for this Raspberry Pi, and there's another platform called Arduino Platform. So what we're working on is how can we deploy these weather stem systems at a fraction of the cost that are low power, that can connect to a cellular network? Because for us, I'll share you know, with your viewers very candidly, we're not in the business of trying to sell weather stations. If we could, we, if we could afford to, we would give these weather stem systems away. Okay? We, we basically sell them at our cost. Um, you know, we're more excited about what we can do with the data and information these systems collect and with some of the technologies coming out of this Raspberry Pi community, I think it is going to represent a, a mammoth leap forward in the ability to deploy exponentially more weather probes and sensors, high-resolution cameras, in places where we would have never been able to do that for a number of economic and practical reasons. So that, right. that, that's what we're, we're actually working on a program called Weather Stem Breeze that will be based on this Raspberry Pi that I've described. That's absolutely incredible. You know, just, I'm not, I'm not very well versed in the program community, but I, I do understand the ras Raspberry Pi stuff. And, you know, as, as technology increases and uh, the cost of product goes down, it, it benefits everybody. So uh, does, you know, yeah. look, looking forward uh, to seeing what the future holds there. Yeah, me too. I'm very excited about it. Ed, talking about that, um, you know, we've been talking about the weather some unit and, you know, how it's dispersed throughout the Southeast. Um, for those folks who may have heard of Weatherstone, but they don't know what the actual unit entails, uh, can you talk to our followers a little bit about what all kind of instruments and stuff sure. that you yeah. guys use on these? You know, so the, the standard, again, you know, the, there's a hardware part of what we do and a software part, and, and they don't care about one another. So the, the so like if, if you go to one of our Weatherstone websites, like take the one at Clemson, um, you know, it doesn't care what kind of system is dumping data to that platform, if that makes sense. All right. You know, we just take the data and, and, you know, visually represent it. But as far as the standard hardware that we're using, um, we've, we've had a, we have a relationship with uh, Davis Instruments, uh, which is uh, sort of one of the mainstream manufactured weather station technology. Uh, they are, you know, they have a good product. It's reliable. It's relatively cost effective. Um, you know, we're not, um, you know, we, 
we use their program. We use their weather station because it's maybe not, it's a good option um, from an economic and from a reliability point of view. Are we saying it's the best? No, but it works for us. Um, we also use a camera. Our standard camera is from a company called Vivitech, which is a Japanese company. And, um, you know, the cameras that we use, these, these um, weather cloud cameras, I call them, you know, 10 years ago, the same kind of camera would have been probably six, $7,000, a waterproof network camera that could live stream. You know, now you can get them for a few hundred dollars. Um, so, uh, you know, the standard weather stem systems that we deploy um, they have a Davis uh, Vantage Pro 2 wireless, uh, Vantage Pro 2 Plus wireless implementation, a Vivitech 2 megapixel camera, um, and then um, sometimes, you know, the STEM in our company's name, Weather STEM, has two meanings. So I told you about the educational roots of science, technology, engineering, and math. There's also an agricultural concept. STEM is in stem of a plant. Sometimes we set these things up at farms. Sometimes we set these things up in agricultural environments where we'll also off the system with hydrological probes that can make more agricultural-oriented measurements. Another thing we do that's pretty cool, and I saw you had it on your, your um, video, and you can check this out at our Instagram page. We have an artist on our staff who actually paints the weather stations with the organization's colors and logos, all right? And, and you know, I say, who, who says science equipment has to be ugly, right? Um, and, and if you're, if you're implementing this program for education, if you take the standard Davis weather station out of the box, it's, it's no disrespect to Davis. It's an ugly black die cast plastic thing. Okay. But if you paint it with the colors and logos and make it nice and shiny, uh, right away, the receptivity to it is going to be that much higher. Okay. So that's sort of the weather stem package. And then again, the exciting thing is what do we do? with the data and the pictures and the images that these systems collect. Well, that, that's really inter interesting. And, and I'm just kind of curious, what kind of uh, you know, data requirements, uh, as far as the network requirements, do you guys need to, to be able to have your stations perform? Extremely minimal. Uh, you know, when you're talking about the weather station itself, you know, weather data is pretty much numerical data. So we just have a, you obviously need an internet connection. You know, we, we need to be able to receive data so that we can display it and work with it in real time. Uh, so the weather station needs to be able to make an outbound transmission over the Internet. And that Internet connection can be provided via a cellular modem or a landline connection. Uh, and the amount of data, the amount of bandwidth it is using is extremely minimal. Um, the camera, obviously, camera is dealing with a little bit more high fidelity content. Uh, that also needs an Internet connection so we can send the images out to weather stem but um you know these days the total amount of images that are being sent by a weather stem camera in one day you know probably are not much different from like if you download a song or if you you know send a bunch of powerpoints via email so the the overall bandwidth requirements are pretty trivial uh the networking requirements are very trivial so it's a really it's a really easy implementation uh there really aren't any security risks um very uh, you know very low level as far as the technical requirements here. That's incredible. I think uh, James is going to get in here, Scotty, somebody. But uh, thanks for that answer. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to yes, hop sir. in here. Ed, what we have in a double box just next to you here on the screen is actually some imagery that you guys provided us and the rest of the world as Hurricane Michael came ashore. Ooh. And I was just curious if you could share a little bit of your thoughts and emotions from that day as you were watching wow. your own images. You had these these cameras I mean, this is obviously a situation we never wanted to happen, but sure. it did happen, and your cameras were perfectly positioned. Yeah. Wow. Well, it was, you know, you mentioned the term emotions, and that, that is a perfect term because there, I had emotions on so many levels. Um, I'm a homeowner, and I'm a father in Tallahassee, Florida. And, uh, you know, there was a time, before, you know, a couple of days before landfall that it looked almost with certainty that the storm was going to make a direct hit toward our county. And the situation uh, for me as a homeowner and my neighbors uh, would have been very, very different. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, I, I think that for, from a meteorological perspective, um, you know, I used to think that it would be unnatural for a meteorologist to not root for a storm. But then you get older and you realize you start seeing that, you know, there's actually people getting hurt and people dying and property getting destroyed. Uh, so, you know, the, the emotions between this, this amazingly 
powerful storm and it's coming toward an area where I live and we have all these weather stations that are collecting these images and this data. It, it was a um, difficult to find the pro appropriate word to describe how I felt. I don't want to say excited because that makes it sound like I thought it was a good thing that was happening. Um, but yeah, there, there were a lot of different emotions going on there. Ed, um, speaking of Michael and just in general with, with the weather stations you guys have deployed, um, how is the National Weather Service coming in this? Do, are, are, do they use your data and reports? What is that work in relationship like with the Weather Service? Yeah. Well, we make, uh, you know, from the very beginning, we've made it clear that all the data, all the images, all the videos that this program collects is free and open to the public. Uh, it's open via a web interface. We have an API. Uh, API, uh, for your not less technical viewers, stands for Application Programming Interface. And basically what it is, is it's a way, like, if you know how to write code, or if you're teaching kids how to write code, they can write some simple computer code that pulls data from any of our weather stem systems. And then they can use it in their research or in our, their own web page. So, you know, we, we made it very clear that we were not going to ever monetize this data. Um, so slowly but surely, I think, you know, some federal entities like the National Weather Service, like the National Hurricane Center, have discovered weather stem and used it in, in various um, reports. Uh, you know, the social media part, for instance, um, in Mobile, National Weather Service Mobile in Alabama, if you follow their social media, a lot of times you'll see them retweet um, the automated posts from some of our weather stem systems in the Panhandle area. Uh, and, and you'll see that in, in varying degrees. So um, we, we think that's really great when that happens. Uh, uh, you know, some folks from the National Weather Service has re have reached out to us to ask us clarifying questions like, hey, I see this weather stem system here measured a 75 mile an hour wind gust. Can you tell us anything about it? What's the anemometer height? Um, so, you know, we have, we have a, an info, we don't have a formal relationship with them. Uh, we have an informal, friend, friendly relationship with them, and we're always here to answer the questions or even provide any programmatic tweaks to our platform to help make it easier for them to use the data we're collecting. If we're going to collect all that data, we might as well do our part to try to make it easier for them to work with. So you're talking about that that data that's collected, and another thing that you guys do, and I know uh, I hate that Melissa is not here to uh, to jump in and talk about this subject, but you guys also do re outreach to schools, yeah. and you provide lessons and education material and stuff like that. So can you talk to us a little bit about that aspect of weather still? Yeah, absolutely. And and again, that was how the program got started. The program got started um, because uh, you know it was originally focused on education. And, you know, we have created a vast trove of weather lessons. Uh, and if, if you go to any weather STEM site, there's a link called Scholar, and that will give you, you know, access to them. And one of the really cool things that we do is we take the data from our weather STEM systems and we incorporate it into the lessons. So if you're learning something like math, if you're learning like statistics or some other sort of thing like that, you're working with live data instead of data that was made up by who knows who, who knows when, who knows where. Um, and again, I, I give you know all the credit to Melissa. She has sort of been our pioneer in writing and, and storyboarding a lot of that content. And we've also created a full year high school level meteorology course that's aligned to the uh, next generation science standards. That's awesome information. And I know uh, a lot of folks uh, uh, enjoy that. And um, we're uh, very happy to uh, to be partnered with you all in, in showing the, the information and the data that that's collected in, in these webcams. And uh, we're also um, very thankful for the opportunity of looking at some of that education material as well. And as we go throughout the year, something we're going to do here on the show is going to do be little weather breakout segments. And a lot of us panelists are going to use that material and kind of do a two, three minutes uh, weather or science talk. Uh, during our podcast. So that's something that we're looking forward to. So we're coming up close to the nine o'clock hour. Ed, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you before uh, before we kind of transition uh, towards uh, our, our next topic. But uh, you mentioned you guys have a website, a mobile app. What's the best way that folks can follow you and get your data, the data that's released? I know you, you're talking about the website. I know each individual weather station has a, a social media site. So Tell us some of those outlets and maybe how we can download the app and stuff like that to get uh, to get information from your weather stations. Sure. So weatherstem.com is our website. 
and that sort of provides a gateway to uh, some really useful resources. Um, we have another platform we've created very recently called Orange STEM, which can be described as a really cool weather STEM dashboard. Um, so orangestem.com, weatherstem.com, um, weatherstem on Facebook, weatherstem on Twitter, and, and I'm very easy to get a hold of. My email is just ed at weatherstem.com. Uh, I welcome people to reach out to me, ask questions. Um, I'm pretty fast at responding. Uh, so it, it's pretty easy to get a hold of us and to follow us and to get access to some of these resources that we're making freely available to the public. And as Chris had mentioned earlier, um, if there's folks who are watching tonight, maybe in the emergency management community, maybe the school, uh, education community, if they want to inquire or get more information about how they can get WeatherStem at their location, how what's the best way to do that? Uh, well, at our website at weatherstem.com, there's, uh, there's different channels for if you're in emergency management, if you're in education. Um, it, it's very easy to fill out a contact form that will come to us or send an email to edit.weatherstem.com. Would love to hear from you. I'll respond to you personally and uh, uh, drive the dialogue toward helping us help bring this program to your community. Hey, Evan, you were talking about Asheville. We need to get some folks at UNCA to get on board and, and get us a weather station up there. I've already been brainstorming the whole time. Y'all have been chatting about where it could go and all this good stuff. And we obviously, as I said, you know, with full sincerity, if we could afford to, we would give away the equipment. Um, but obviously we, we are, you know, we, we have to charge for it because otherwise we wouldn't be able to afford to do what we did. But we did negotiate with, um, when we first started bringing WeatherStem to UNC, so we have one at UNC Chapel Hill, at NC State, at um, App State, at UNC Greensboro, we did negotiate favorable pricing for the UNC schools, and we have extended that same pricing to all North and South Carolina entities. So I'm not trying to give a sales pitch to your listeners, but I am, you know, I'm giving one anyway in the context of we, you know, expressing our sincere um, interest in trying to make it more affordable for us to partner with more entities up in the Carolinas. I think all of the panelists will say the, the more data that we can get, the better. So uh, reach out to Ed and uh, if you or your uh, business or something like that would like to be a part of that, I know Ed would love to uh, to work with you all. So Ed, we appreciate you uh, joining us tonight. Stick around if you want to. Uh, but I'm going to turn it to James Barton, who has uh, – we've had a big news story in the weather community. Well, in the I guess a nationwide news story, but it's affected us here in the weather community, James. If you've been watching the news over the past few years, you're probably already familiar with the Takata airbag recall. The device is being recalled because a defect in the airbag was causing shrapnel to inflict injury or even death in some cases on drivers. The recall involves 19 vehicle manufacturers and approximately 46 million Takata airbag inflators in what is an estimated 34 million vehicles here in the United States. Well, in an AP story that we read, a particular line caught our attention here at the Carolina Weather Group. Quote, the chemical used by Takata can deteriorate over time due to high humidity and cycles from hot temperatures to cold. The most dangerous inflators are in areas of the south along the Gulf of Mexico that have high humidity. Well, here in the Carolinas, as you know, temperatures can range 50 degrees. Maybe it's 80 in the afternoon, 40 at night. And so it got us thinking, what threat does this pose to the drivers here in the Carolinas? Joining us now from Auburn Hills, Michigan, is Justin Donofrio. He is a chemical engineer with experience in airbags. Good evening, and welcome to the Carolina Weather Group, Justin. Hi, James. Yeah, thank you for having me. Justin, I was hoping you could start by explaining how weather and climate affect an airbag. Well, I think in your intro there, you kind of nailed it uh, in the idea, in the sense that it's temperature swings are the are the big role here in, in what causes these malfunctions. Uh, when the recall started uh, in mass back in 2016, zones in the south were kind of targeted because of said temperature swings. When those inflators are exposed to temperatures that range, you know, during the day from the 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit range, and then at night swing back down to the below freezing or even 40 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when you get uh, those malfunctions that combined with a very long period of time. That's where when you should start being concerned. Justin, could you explain for us what's going on inside the airbag and how it got us to where we are today? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so in Takata's case, it's a chemical called ammonium nitrate. Uh, ammonium nitrate is the fuel inside those airbags. It's what inflates the airbag when uh, you get into a crash. 
And the thing about ammonium nitrate is that it's uh, hygroscopic. What hygroscopic means is that uh, it has a propensity to just pull moisture vapor out of the air and gain weight. So if you took a little, uh, you know, a little piece of powder of ammonium nitrate and left it on your table, it would slowly gain rate, weight as moisture vapor is kind of pulled into it out of the air. And that changes its form, you know, and, and, and when ammonium nitrate is used in, a, in an inflator such as Takata's airbag inflators, if the form changes, that's when you start getting that inflator performing erratic, erratically. And in the case of Takata's airbags, the unfortunate, you know, uh, you know, deathly explosions. Should people living in the Carolinas, in the South, be concerned about this potential defect in their airbag? You know, James, I would say that you should be concerned if you receive a recall notice. If you get a recall notice saying you should replace one or more airbags in your vehicle, do not ignore it. Do not ignore it. Go to your dealer, your your auto manufacturer, and get it replaced as soon as possible. And if no kit is available in your area, have the dealer order one for you and have them remove said airbag from your car. No airbag is definitely safer in this case than having an airbag. That being said, if you don't have a recall notice, I do not worry. Uh, the government, NHTSA, is, is taking care of these cases on a case-by-case basis. The vast majority of other competing airbags are safe. And uh, yeah, so I, I would just caution the public to make sure that, you know, if you have a recall notice, make sure that you get that thing changed as soon as possible. Justin, thank you for your time. And for those of you at home, find out if you have a recall, you can visit NH. TSA.gov to learn more. That's NHTSA.gov. If you do have a recall on your vehicle, contact your local mechanic or your local dealership to inquire about getting that repaired. And we have even more of our interview with Justin Donofrio. It will be available in an extended version coming soon on Facebook and YouTube. But immediately after our show, it'll be our first piece of exclusive content available to our Patreon viewers. So if you'd like to support the Carolina Weather Group and the content that you see here, check us out on Patreon because our patrons will be getting first dibs on that extended interview. Let's bring back in the panel now as we come up on the 9 o'clock hour and uh, transition into our weather roundtable. Here once again, Scotty Powell. Thank you for that, James. Interesting information there. Uh, Jared, we were uh, privy of some information that came out earlier today. I know it got me excited. Uh, Chris there that lives in, in uh, Columbia excited. Uh, we know for uh, previous years, we've talked about it on this show, that the radar coverage in Western North Carolina, the portions of Northern South Carolina into the Piedmont of North Carolina just doesn't have the best radar capabilities in the lowest levels. Well, uh, the government uh, passed a, 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 a law a couple of years ago talking about how uh, major metropolitan areas, Charlotte was uh, mentioned in that, needs adequate radar coverage. So a case study and some uh, information has been shared and we got some release information on that, Jared. You like to talk about radar, so I'll let you kind of talk to our, our, our followers of, of what we are anticipating. And then I've got a few graphics that we can pop up and kind of put the words to, to pictures to show you just how excited we are about this news. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take my screen full here. I'm going to show you guys just a, just a, a brief little primer about what what's going to happen here because this is super cool. So um, this is a radar beam. This is a typical radar beam, and, and, and you know, it – when you get a WSR-88D, NextRad radar, this is you know, what we use, what everybody uses, TV, NWS, us here at the Carolina Weather Group, uh, it scans at multiple heights, and, um, and it'll, you know, it'll go, you know, it, it goes certain heights and uh, get a big volume of data. Now, the problem that we've had in parts of the Carolinas is that the radar site, when it gets further away, two things happen. One, the beam goes higher and the beam widens. So you don't get quite that high resolution that you'd like. And so in the case of places like Charlotte, where the 88D is in either in Columbia or is in Greenville, which is, you know, you know, 1,500 miles away as a crow flies, you start, uh, you start losing some of that definition in the radar. So one of the cool things that is being investigated now is the ability to run at a lower tilt. So typical WSR-88D radar, uh, its base sweep is at 0 0.5 degrees. Well, that, that's so the, the, the antenna is tilted up 0 0.5 degrees, and that's where it starts. Um, 
So what they are experimenting with is, um, and this is what's being investigated now with the uh, environmental study, is lowering that angle to 0.2 degrees. And that has some really neat uh, impacts uh, for radar coverage uh, for some of those areas that are less served without having to put in another WSR 88D. So Scotty, you know, you, you forecast up in the Carolinas, Evan, you can chime in on this too. Uh, you, you, in, in North Carolina, you know, there's several radar holes up there. I'd be curious to know you guys' thoughts on these potential changes. Yeah, definitely. And James, I know you're putting those up. So is this the 2000 or the 5000? This would be the 5000 okay. adjusted. Uh, yeah. So as we're looking into the, the sky, this is 5000 ab uh, feet above sea level. Uh, the red circle or semicircle, and then all these little weak, crazy lines just because of the mountains, uh, that is at the half a degree uh, tilt. Now, the, the lighter the blue is now at the uh, two-tenths of a degree tilt. So you can see at 5,000 feet, we're going to be able to see the atmosphere, what's happening 5,000 feet uh, and below. Uh, what's happening in the atmosphere. So that's really going to be helpful. Uh, this is going to include places in, in the far-reaching areas. Uh, this is like uh, Stanley County and Union County, Montgomery County, places like that where we didn't have the best radar coverage from GSP, but now we do. And if, James, if you get to the uh, 2,000 um, feet, I think um, I sent that one as well. So there's the 2,000 feet. You can see that red circle great coverage for northern south carolina but as you get into the mountains of north carolina Asheville totally uh, left out uh so this blue uh this blue line is the new two degree tilt and as you can see places like charlotte concord hickory up into marion and morganton out towards where chris is at in columbia uh the radar is going to be able to scan at the very low part of the atmosphere this is two thousand feet above uh, above sea level. So this is the very lowest part of the atmosphere that we wasn't able to see with the uh, 0.5 degree tilt. So normally, guys, I'll bring uh, Chris in because I know you chase a lot and use radars, and Evan, you live up in the Asheville area. Uh, normally, if we see tornadoes, they're not happening 5,000 feet above in the clouds. It's right at the surface. And uh, Chris, this is going to be easier for you to detect as you're out on the road. And Evan, this is going to be really useful for you guys in the Asheville area. Absolutely, Scotty. So just to talk a little bit about that, you know, when you're looking for a tornado on radar, if you're looking at anything about 2,000 feet to 5,000 feet, unless you just have, you know, one of them once in a year type the EF4, EF5 tornadoes that rarely happen here, uh, you're not going to see it. I mean, you can see mid-level rotation in a storm uh, at that height, but you're not going to see the actual velocity data that indicates a tornado. And so by doing doing this and increasing the coverage, it's going to be tremendously helpful to to all kinds of entities, not just the National Weather Service. Uh, I mean, uh, all down the the whole scope of the weather enterprise. But you know, something else that's going to be really awesome is uh, increased coverage across um, like northern South Carolina, southern uh, North Carolina, really in that corridor between Charlotte Monroe down toward Rockingham, northern Chesterfield, Lancaster County, in South Carolina, and, and really over toward the Bennettsville, Dillon, uh, and Laurenburg areas of North Carolina uh, before you get to Fayetteville. You know, that, that's part of the, uh, I guess, big hole in coverage also. So it's going to be really, really helpful uh, for, for a lot of people and really beneficial to, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, we don't get many tornadoes in West North Carolina, but radar, radar holes are certainly a big issue for us. Um, once you get past the mountains near Tryon and the North Carolina, South Carolina border, uh, there's not very good radar coverage. At least there hasn't been in the past. Oftentimes you have to use a second tilt, which I'm not sure what that is in degrees. Somebody might know better than me um, to see just up and over those mountains. And at that point, you're looking higher in the atmosphere where readings may not be as reliable as closer to the ground where the real rainfall rates are. Um, so this will be exciting to have. Uh, it, it's always great to have better radar data. Uh, it rains a lot in West North Carolina, as we saw last year. So it'll be useful for flash flood warnings. Um, and we had flash flood emergencies last year. Uh, so hopefully we can uh, use this to help uh, pr predict those and real-time forecast those. Definitely so. Yeah. I'm sorry, Scotty. I was gonna, just going to say the, the second tilt on the radar is actually another degree higher. It, it starts out now at a base base tilt of 0.5 degrees, and then the second tilt is 1.5 degrees. So, you know, the lower that you can scan in any storm, it's going to give you better data about what's happening at the surface 
which really matters because that's where we are. Definitely. So, so GSP, the radar out of Greenville Spartanburg, uh, the Columbia radar, I think it's going to a 0.4 or 0.3. I can't remember. Maybe Chris can um, help me on that. And I know Raleigh, the uh, K R A H is also going to be at 0.2. So that's going to really help uh, places like Charlotte, Greensboro, Winston, Salem, uh, just because there's that hole in, in central North Carolina, the Northwest Piedmont that just doesn't have adequate radar data. So uh, that's going to really help us out. Uh, and it's, I guess it's honestly cheaper than building a new radar. So uh, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be very useful to us. So if we can't build a new radar, we at least we're going to get a, a lower scan and that lower scan is really going to help out, um, especially in severe weather season. And as Evan was talking about uh, during heavy rain events. So uh, exciting news. And we can't wait to that for that to uh, get in place and get started. So uh, we'll continue to update you with this uh, information. Like I said, this was just released today. So uh, we'll uh, get some more information on it as we go throughout the, uh, the coming weeks. And hopefully uh, here in the near future, we'll have some better uh, radar coverage for the Carolinas. And speaking of Evan, uh, I think uh, he's barely awake there. He might have had some Waffle House coffee just a little bit ago. Evan, you spent a lot of last night um, watching these wind reports come out of the mountains. Yeah, it is really addicting, especially for someone that loves covering these events. Uh, I stayed up way too late considering the exam I had to take this morning. Um, constantly refreshing that page, waiting for the first 100-mile-an-hour gust to come in. Um, I was expecting wind gusts of somewhere in the neighborhood of greater than 105 miles an hour atop Grandfather Mountain. But much to my surprise and joy, this morning when I woke up, they had recorded 121.3-mile-an-hour gust at 4 a.m. last night. Um, I've done research in the past, which I was trying to pull some of that together to screen share, but I haven't updated it in the last six months, so it's a little bit inaccurate. Um, but in the past, the strongest wind gust recorded there was 120.1, and that was recorded back in December of 2012. So last night's wind gust will take the place of that as new number one. Um, so North Carolina possibly has a new non-thunderstorm, non-hurricane wind gust record. Um, I, I would assume that's the case. Obviously, I'm not a climatologist, and I don't have access to every single station in the entire state, but Grandfather Mountain tends to be the windiest. So uh, it was definitely anomalous and quite the spectacular event. Evan, yeah, I, I would think looking at it, that might come in like second uh, for, for a non-storm event behind Mount Washington, I, I'm, I don't, for the East Coast at least. Definitely. In terms of location, I don't, I don't know about um, – Mount Washington has obviously recorded some very serious wind gusts in the neighborhood of 148, 130. But in terms of locations, this is definitely the windiest – spot um, and on the East Coast right after Mount Washington. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we're, because I'm just thinking off the top of my head, that's about Category 3 hurricane force winds, right? Yep. If that was sustained, that'd be Category 3. And they recorded sustained winds of 98 miles an hour last night, um, which is Category 2. Um, yeah. And that's that's the highest sustained wind ever recorded there as well by a large margin, four or five miles an hour. And so it's, it's crazy what those cold fronts do as they move through the mountains of North Carolina. And so speaking of cold fronts, we had a cold front yesterday, Chris, you were out chasing uh, anything interesting before we kind of transition into uh, how wet it's going to be around here in the next few weeks. Uh, not really. Went out to yesterday afternoon, went over toward Augusta, went over to North Augusta, waited for the uh, little broken line of storms to approach. And as the storms began to approach South Carolina, the, uh, they really started to lose some dynamics that were that were present back into Georgia. I know there was a couple of tornado warnings back into uh, Georgia around the Atlanta area, but uh, you know as they approached the Columbia area, we had the wedge in place yesterday morning, and so the conditions were you know, not quite as primed for severe uh, storms. And uh, you know as as the storms really rolled into North Augusta, they started to become undercut by cold cold air aloft getting uh, mixed down to the surface, and that was where we you know started getting some of these really really strong straight line wind gusts. Uh, I know I saw some isolated, you know, minor damage reports, you know, like uh, trees down across the road uh, on a power line. I think I saw something about a uh, carport was maybe blown away or something like that. So, you know, really light construction, but uh, not, nothing, nothing too crazy yet. Give it another couple months, maybe. And uh, Jared, I'm not sure the, the distance between Charleston and Charlotte, but I want to say it's what 
maybe 250, 250 miles. Uh, yeah, somewhere in there. Something like that. So Charlotte, I think yesterday their high was 45. You guys in Charleston were approaching 80 degrees, and that's yeah, how we, strong the wedge was. <laughs> yeah, we were at 76, and we probably would have gotten to a record high had it not been for a stubborn fog bank. It just didn't want to mix out uh, in the morning. We had dense fog. We had a dense fog advisory issued the night before through about 10 o'clock, and then it didn't leave. So that dense fog advisory got extended once, and then twice, and then a third time before it was finally axed. Uh, but yeah, that fog was pretty. Uh, that fog was uh, pretty uh, tenacious yesterday, and uh, it kept us from uh, riding another record high. Uh, this month we've already had three this month, so uh, hey, what's four between friends? But we'll just have to wait to see uh, if that happens again. Um, but yeah, that wedge was uh, that was uh, that was a tough one to forecast. That it was a, there was a lot of very very upset meteorologists in the Carolinas. There was a lot of busted forecasts yesterday. Let's yeah. just say that uh, a lot yeah. of busted forecasts, especially on the temperature range. So, uh, Jared, you were talking about the warmth that kind of transitioned to our last weather round uh, table discussion tonight. Uh, it looks like, honestly, winter is really nowhere to be found. We may have a few surges of cool air move into the area, but looking over the next week, two weeks, it looks pretty warm and wet around here. How's it look there at the coast? We'll go from the coast all the way up here into uh, North Carolina. Yeah, warm and wet is the rule. We're going to stay well above normal for at least the next seven days. Uh, we, we've got we've got some, uh, and we're going to be unsettled. You know, we're going to be kind of on the periphery of that wet, very wet pattern. As uh, James has got the uh, WPC QPF uh, up there, uh, we're going to be kind of on the periphery of that. We're not going to quite see the heaviest rain here and uh, along the coast, but we're still going to have periods of unsettled weather. Um, you know, I think some of us are rooting for winter just so the groundhog can be wrong. But, um, but, but beyond that, you know, it, it really just looking at some of these, uh, just looking at some of the long term, uh, just uh, some of the long term forecasts here. And again, these weekly, you know, the weeklies are just all over the place. But um, general pattern applies: uh, ridge in the east, trough in the west, and uh, that's going to keep things. Uh, you know, that's that's going to keep things a little warm, a little unsettled. We have a. a there's a really good looking storm track setting up. And if only we could get some cold air damming, Scotty, maybe we could get you some snow. Yeah, it looks interesting. Next week, possible. Uh, depends on the high pressure where it sets up next week. But um, we're in that storm track. But if you could get some 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 wedging in, I, I guess our concern would really be ice more than snow. But uh, definitely possible. Chris, uh, there in the Midlands, South Carolina, you start to inch up in the rainfall category. And then, Evan, I'll let you kind of talk about what the rainfall is going to be like here in western North Carolina. Yeah, Scotty, just looking at the next next couple of weeks, we're going to see in this active pattern with the, the southern branch of the jet just, you know, feeding moisture in from the Gulf. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm ready for spring. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but uh, for us, for shoot over to Evan, I want to get y'all's thoughts on something. We all play fantasy football, or at least a lot of people do, but – what about fantasy weather? Have you have you guys seen the new weather app, Weather Battle, daily weather forecasting, fantasy style? Yeah, that's been around for um, that's been around for a few months now. I remember uh, Steve Miller at WTT. That is uh, that's his thing, and uh, you know he uh, Steve uh, is prominent in the radar scope community, and this is a little thing that he set up. I haven't played. Um, I have been meaning to. It looks cool. Do any of you guys do it? I, I, I don't, but I would love for them to have a daily wedge challenge in the Carolinas because, I don't know, somebody could make some money. And, and a lot of people would lose a lot, too. I'd be losing. <laughs> yeah, I've never played it. So, um, But, Evan, I'll let you kind of – we're talking about the wedge. Well, it's looking really wet here in western North Carolina. It is, yeah. Looking out over the next 15 days, it's just going to be a very wet pattern moving into west North Carolina. If you look at the ensemble forecast from the GEFS, um, we're looking at an ensemble mean over the next you know, 15 days of somewhere around six to seven inches in Nashville, which is substantial, uh, kind of reminiscent of last year, unfortunately. Uh, like we need more rain, right? We really don't need more rain. There have been some rumbles of snow next week. Uh, Scotty mentioned it. And there's a little bit of support on both the G GFS and the Euro ensembles. But uh, it, it's nothing worth uh, freaking out about yet. Matter of fact, that support has really gone down over the last 48 hours, about 48 hours ago. 
GFS had an ensemble mean of about 12 inches of snow in Asheville. And now that is down to roughly one to two inches. Um, so that it's, it's not looking good for snow lovers. Yeah, we're, we're right on this battle line. And uh, if you have friends or maybe if you're tuning in tonight from Virginia North, it seems like that's where the cold air is at. And once you get into North Carolina, it's kind of the transition zone to, to more warmer temperatures per se. So uh, we'll have to watch and see how strong we can get that high pressure to our north and how much cold air we can get wedged in here to see uh, if we have any weather, winter weather potential. But unlike Chris, after last week, I'm about ready for spring to to get here, even if that does mean the groundhog's right. Which, um, I hate to admit, but hey, bring on the warmer weather. So uh, we appreciate you watching tonight. Next week, we're going to be having uh, with us uh, Mr. Brian Brett Schneider. He is a climatologist for the state of Alaska. And for whatever reason, I've really become to love the state of Alaska. So I'm really looking forward to next week and uh, talking about the different uh, – Alaskan weather. I mean, it's uh, extreme up there from warm to cold and all these snow events. And so we're going to be talking with uh, Brian next week just about Alaskan weather and uh, kind of uh, talk about that. So looking forward to that program uh, for next week. But for tonight, we are going to end with a look back at the Opportunity Rover mission on Mars, which came to an end today, a formal end. A, a dust storm affected uh, the, uh, the vehicle. Uh, I want to say it was a a week ago or something, uh, maybe two weeks ago, and uh, they just lost all contact. So uh, the rover mission is is finished on Mars, but uh, we look back now uh, at the uh, the opportunity, the mission, and just what uh, the images it brought back to us here on planet Earth. So we hope you have a great afternoon, a great evening, and uh, we will see you back here next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Weather Group. Have a safe landing. We're seeing it on the LTP. Opportunity hit a hole-in-one when she landed. The airbag system rolled into the small crater called Eagle Crater. And when the rover first turned on its cameras, it saw that the rim of the small crater was lined with exposed bedrock. So we took out our microscope for the first time and we took a picture and the surface of Mars at that location is littered with an uncountable number of little round things. That were called blueberries because they looked like blueberries in a muffin. What we discovered was that those are features that form in water and, and they were a really definitive sign that there had been liquid water on the surface of Mars sometime in the past. You know, after we left Eagle Crater, we went to Endurance Crater and that's the crater we drove down in. And there we did what the geologists call an in-sequence stratigraphic section, which is essentially reading the chapters of the Martian history book in reverse order. That rover became a stratigrapher. First time you had a stratigrapher on Mars. <laughs> we knew we wanted to go after endurance to Victoria. We put pedal to the metal and we started heading there, tens of kilometers away. We had to literally surf across these dunes of wind-blown material, and the rover got stuck in one of those. We had to get the rover unstuck. What we found is the, the best way to get it out is just to put it in reverse and gun it. <laughs> the rover eventually popped out. And so we changed our driving strategy. So we recognize these ripples as hazards. We get to this giant half mile diameter crater, Victoria Crater, and we want to figure out, gee, how can we go into this thing? All of a sudden we got high rise images. We could see the rover in the image. And that was the very first image that we got from space showing one of our rovers. We spent a year scouting the edge of that crater to decide where we wanted to go in to get the best stratigraphic section. We found a place to go in and, and we drove down in and we spent a, about a year inside Victoria Crater. The science team was really excited about the idea of driving to Endeavour Crater over 20 kilometers away. This is a long drive to do. It was going to take multiple years, but they decided to do it anyways. There were too many of these dangerous ripples in our way, and we actually had to take this circuitous route that at times took us away from the crater, only to then cut back and then approach it more directly. And then we pull up to Endeavour Crater, and all of a sudden there's all these new things to look at. 
We first discovered the homestake vein. It was this very, very bright linear feature. It turns out that it was a big gypsum vein and we see these gypsum veins now all over. So it was our first taste of what is a really important process on Mars. We were driving to a valley, and along the way there, we realized that right about the point where we were about to get to this valley, that was when we were gonna cross the marathon mark. So we said, well, that's cool. We're just gonna name this valley after that, call it Marathon Valley. That was when we reached the distance of a marathon, 26.2 miles on another planet. We continued driving through some slopes down a little bit on the interior of the crater rim until we came back out so that we could continue on to the next valley, Perseverance Valley. Where the rover was exploring when we lost contact. We said we're going to operate this vehicle until the day where we can't and that's exactly what we did and I'm really proud. We've set a foundation that will serve as the basis for future exploration. 